Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our whole crew. We have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Uh, It is December. We are in the busiest time of year for awards of all kinds. Uh, Possibly as we're speaking, the National Board of Review is releasing their list of uh, winners for this year, which we probably won't get to talk about unless it literally breaks while we're recording, which would be fun and exciting. Um, But the Gotham Awards happened in New York. The Indie Spirit nominations are out. The Critics Awards are going to start coming really fast. Uh, The Golden Globes are less than a week away as we record. So there is a lot happening. And on top of all of that, everyone is spending three and a half hours watching Netflix to catch up with the new Martin Scorsese movie. So we have all of those things to talk about, which is exciting. Um, But we wanted to kick off with the Gotham Awards because uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. They happened last night. Uh, Richard, you were there in the room at a very fancy table, I understand. You were kind of a VIP this time. (laughs) I was invited by Gunpowder and Sky um, to sit at the Hersmel table uh, because the star of that movie uh, and one of the stars of this podcast, at least for one episode, Elizabeth Moss, was nominated at the Gothams. She did not win, sadly. Uh, She actually was kind of a surprise win in that category for Best Actress went to Aquafina for The Farewell. Um, who was expected to win? Scarlett Johansson? I don't know who was expected to win exactly, but I, I, I don't think I would have pegged that as the... Uh as the outcome, certainly. Um, but yeah, I think the big narrative really f- for our for our sort of predictive purposes is how well uh, Marriage Story did. Um, it won yeah. Best Feature, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay for Noah Baumbach. Um, and I don't know. I mean, if you look at who does the nominating for the Gotham Awards, it's a bunch of people, you know, we all know, kind of journalists, film people, critics, whatnot. But then the people who vote on the actual winners um, is, is an interesting combination of film people, be they actors, directors, writers, and otherwise uh, in the industry. And so, I don't know, that would seem to, it's a small amount of people compared to the Academy, of course, but there, it would seem to indicate some, you know, strong institutional support for Marriage Story. Yeah, I was talking to Mike before this, who was kind of asking about what qualifies for the Gothams and what doesn't. And I tried to get a little bit of intel. It's kind of like the Indie Spirits, where it needs to be an independent film. It needs to be under some budget number. I don't know that it has a specific one. And it has to be American. So mm-hmm. that disqualifies everything from Parasite to The Irishman. Uh, even though Marriage Story is a Netflix movie, The Irishman cost a fortune and Marriage Story didn't. Um, so it is, it's a smaller selection of the movies in contention. But I think you're right, Richard, that it does indicate a lot of strength for, um, for Marriage Story. Yeah, I mean, it's a good way to start its narrative, at least, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, when you look at the nominated films, it's The Farewell, Hustlers, Marriage Story, Uncut Gems, and Waves. Um, So not a lot of, uh, of that group, I guess, probably Marriage Story is the only, like, best picture possibility to win, you know? I think you could imagine maybe one or two of those others getting in for a nomination. Um, But man, yeah, they, they won how many awards? last night i mean it was like uh, i think they won those three big ones and then there was an audience award right so yeah it was it was just that you just heard like i the uh, you know the whole dinner while the show was happening i was like has no one just been standing on that stage for two hours right. like that's <laughs> he what was it the felt host, like actually yeah. yeah it's so interesting because um 
you know, now that The Irishman is out on Netflix, the the big conversation on social media has is happening around it. You know, there's mm-hmm. a kind of a small film Twitter conversation around these things, and then the rest of the world gets to see it. And so I think it's next Friday, right? That um that Marriage Story I think that's comes right, out. Yeah. So I'm really interested to see how people, humans uh, in the wild, react to it. Yeah, because <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was great. Obviously, a lot of people liked it as well. Um, I. I loved it, and I think it has. Uh, you, I'm going to use the uh, success of Knives Out in the theaters this past weekend as a as a benchmark for what can happen when you put incredibly popular franchise actors like Chris Evans in a. I, I'm not going to like pin it all on Chris Evans, but like Knives Out performed super well. The only thing I can think of that like maybe got people in in seats, other than Ryan Johnson's willingness to talk to everyone about this movie, which I am so <laughs> impressed with his publicity tour for uh, that. Including Little Gold like, Men, if you haven't heard of last week's episode. Including mm-hmm. this podcast. But like, you know, they did, he did a great, he's done like so many Q&As. He talked to Anthony Bresnikin for a screening last week. Like he's just been around. But also like Chris Evans in that trailer, I think was such like a huge uh, draw for people. And like people, I mean, ScarJo, Adam Driver, Laura Dern, like these are, uh, these are hugely popular actors. Uh, Alan Alda. Alan F and Alda. I just meant like <laughs> populist popular. Yes, yes. Maybe maybe um Alan Alda is, is hip with the youths. Maybe the, the TikTokers love MASH. I don't know. But um <laughs> That would be really great. But <laughs> that would be great. But um but yeah, so like I think a bunch of people are gonna see it. Like people love Adam Driver and um everyone else that's involved and I think it's just I, I'm really excited for him to see it. I love this movie. But but on the other hand, I mean yes, people love all these actors, but on the other hand, it's an incredibly fairly excruciating, you know, dive into divorce, um, which is, and I think it does so entertainingly. And, you know, as someone who's been through a divorce, like it's, I think it's very legit how it handles it, but it's not the like most fun topic. I mean, Knives Out at the end of the day is like basically Clue with an cast of all-star casts. And um, this is like a, this is a pretty dark, intense thing, but so is The Irishman and lots of people liked it and are talking about it. And some people didn't like it. And that's turned into a fun kind of debate. Yeah, I and would I think say it's more it's more less excruciating than The Irishman, um, which we can yes. get into. Sorry, Richard. <laughs> I agree. No, I was just going to say that, like, if you are someone who you know is kind of passingly aware of what movies are being spoken about as awardsy, um, but you know you're sort of a casual observer of that, like Marriage Story offers a lot of access points that, like, maybe something a little bit more esoteric that's also in the awards conversation doesn't. And so I feel like it's a good it's a good access point for people who want to at least have something to talk about at Christmas parties, you know, in the coming Saturday. <laughs> you know? so, so what are yeah. the meme gifts going to be? Is it going to be Adam Driver p- punching a hole through the wall? Uh, Laura Dern uh, giving a monologue about like the Virgin Mary or whatever. <laughs> yeah, she also Adam, won Adam a like singing. she got yeah, like a special Adam tribute Driver award singing. at the Gotham's um, this week, and like Greta and Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, who both have her in movies this season, like introduced her. They gave kind of a long thing, and like that further bolstered the movie's profile. Um, not not just uh, Mary's Story, but Little Women too. But um, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like zeitgeist enough for a kind of small somewhat devastating divorce drama what's funny about Laura Dern in those two films too it, the husband and wife directors and they couldn't be more different the two yeah. roles yeah it's really that that's like I mean you know that Laura Dern is a great actress with lots of range but it's fun to see her in these two side-by-side kind yeah. of performances yeah and and you know it, it furthers the narrative that you know Gold Derby and many others are kind of um you know, perpetuating at the moment that she's the favorite to win yeah. supporting actress. Yeah. So, well, yeah, and Joanna, you talk about Ryan Johnson talking to everybody. Laura Dern is like a like a time traveler. Like she is everywhere. Every time you turn <laughs> around, she's accepting yeah. a like special award somewhere. 
I mean, Richard and I both have been in the presence of Laura Dern accepting a special award this season, and like that's <laughs> alone. And uh, yeah, I think she's. I think she has like a whole mantle full of you know, because like Vulture gave her one. Like she's got a ton of honorary awards this season that she's just like got this whole narrative. And that's why I mean, we don't need to reopen this case right now. But like I keep seeing the more and more award screeners I watch, the the less I'm convinced that the best actress category is sewn up. We can revisit that in another time. But like I, I don't feel that cemented the same. Same way I feel Laura Dern and I'm driver cemented. So. Well, Anna Paquin's now in the lead, right? For yes, Best right. Actress. <laughs> the only performance that matters in the Irish Medicare. Most system. supportive actress. <laughs> Most supportive. <laughs> um, Richard, from being in the room at the Gothams, did anyone stand out as like especially exciting? Like was everyone centering on everyone? I saw A-Rod showed up, so his Oscar buzz is definitely uh, increasing. Yeah, A-Rod was there, which means Jennifer Lopez was there. Um, and I didn't realize that they get a lot of talent. I mean, like, Sandler was there. Like, Jennifer Lopez was there. It was. It, it felt like a very lively, star-studded room. Um, and, you know, I don't know. I think that, like, the Hustlers having such a strong presence there, even though it didn't really win anything, like, it, it was it was nominated for things, and, like, the whole cast was there. I got to thank Kiki Palmer for, thank, uh, sorry to this man in person, which was <laughs> thank you. pretty thank exciting. You and, and I also met Constance Wu, and she was very lovely, so, you know. But the only time don't I, believe the rumors. The only time I went was the year of Lincoln, that mm-hmm. crazy year when I sort of did, like, the full circuit, every yeah. single thing. Um, and Daniel Day-Lewis, like, you know, was was there. Like, sure. So you're just like, okay, I guess they all come. If yeah. he's here, they're all coming. When it's New York City. It's easy to get to yep. for, for most, you know. Um, and it's and it's nice free dinner. Um, I sat next to Agnes Dane, who was also in her smell, and like yes. we were both talking about like the food was like weird, weirdly like kind of good. It like wasn't like wedding food you would <laughs> right. you would think of like an event like that. <laughs> um, so they 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 make it a very nice evening. Uh, in order, I think, to help get uh, all the talent there, um, and it, I just saw a ton of people like networking, and um, it was a whole. I think I would say honestly, the most popular person in the in the, this vast room, at Cipriani Wall Street, was Noah Jupe, who was nominated mm. for uh, his supporting turn in Honey Boy, and is also in uh, Ford v Ferrari. Uh, he's I don't know fourteen or something, and like I just saw like everyone saying hi to him. Well, I hear they're going to remake all of Shia LaBeouf's movies with him <laughs> in them. <laughs> did uh, a live action have- remakes <laughs> of Shia LaBeouf's movies? So I watched I watched Ford versus Ferrari last night. Really liked it. Also, her smell last night. And um, wow, big night. I, thanks. Those are not um, short movies. No. Um, and uh, Noah Jupe is so good in Ford versus Ferrari, which is what Richard said uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about it. And uh, then I googled him and I saw he has like an earring in real life. Did he was he wearing his earring? He was. He was not wearing his dangly earring that he wore, I believe, on oh, Ellen. Okay. But he was wearing a, a different kind of earring and, and a very smart suit. It's just kind of funny when you just like see a 14 year old who's like 18,000 times cooler than you. And you're just I like, know. well, then who cares? What the, What's the point trying? <laughs> Yeah, I really need to to figure out my rule on kids at award shows for Noah Jupe because he's 14. He's, he's going to be 15 in February. Like, he's kind of old enough to have fun at these things. I, I need to get back on this because I think he's so great in these movies and I want success for him. But I also want him to be a kid, which is the plot of Honey Boy, which is part of why Honey Boy's great. Mm-hmm. I hear he texts with Drake a lot all, all night. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> God. He's too famous. Um, Well, speaking of award shows that happened in New York, um, the next big one will be the National Board of Review, which, like I said, they're about to announce their nominees, uh, but also the New York Film Critics Circle Awards, which always happen right after New Year's. And uh, Richard, you're in the Critics Circle. You're going to be voting Mm -hmm. tomorrow, um, so you don't know what's going to get what's going to win although by the time people hear this they will um do you want to just like give it insight into like what you expect to happen what your plans what you're gonna stump for 
Yeah, I mean, I I think that uh, it's an interesting year for us because we don't always vote on these lines, but like there are a lot of New Yorky movies this year between uh, Marriage Story, Uncut Gems, The Irishman to some extent is at least an East Coast movie, if not specifically New York. But Scorsese certainly is a very much a New Yorker director, so um, that it'll be interesting to see if those things uh, are you know affect the outcome. Um, you know, I saw Uncut Gems kind of like later. I saw it like maybe I think last week, week before, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, had missed it at all the fall festivals, and I was so taken by it. I mean, it's on my top ten list, uh, which you know I was surprised because I did not like the Safdie brothers' previous two films. Yeah, you had um, kind of actively avoided Uncut Gems. Uh, yeah, because everyone was like, "It's so stressful, and you're going to be miserable." And uh, <laughs> I get what they were saying, but like, it's like it's good stress because it's just such a well-made movie. Yeah. Um, and I think Sandler is terrific in it. So I I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for him for for actor, which um, I did not think I was going to do as recently as you know a week and a half ago. Um, but I just think that would be kind of a cool win. I think that you know in 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 years past, like. The New York Film Critics Circle has been, I think, good about giving awards to performers who don't typically win awards. Like Cameron Diaz won for There's Something About Mary. We gave a prize to Tiffany Haddish for Girls Trip and Regina uh, Hall for um, Support the Girls. And so, um, I don't know, I think Sandler would be a part of that narrative as well, mm-hmm. as would Jennifer Lopez. Yeah. She's the another one. Another New York, another New Yorker. So classic New Yorker. I, I feel like mm-hmm. she's the one who's might get the biggest boost out of there. And I'm also very curious to see what you guys go for for Best Actress because, as Joanna was saying, like Renee Zellweger is kind of the minted front runner, but I wouldn't expect her to be a critical one. But I don't really know who would win instead. Elizabeth Moss. Elizabeth Moss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Elizabeth Moss would be great. Um, that, again, is another kind of New York-y movie because Alex Ross Perry is a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker. Um, it was filmed in this area. Um, so that could help things. One name I heard tossed out, just kind of casually talking with other members at the Gotham Awards cocktail thing um, this week, was Jesse Buckley for Wild Rose, mm-hmm. um, which is, if, if, yes. you haven't, if you're flying Delta in the next month or two, it's on there. Go watch it. It's, so, <laughs> it's really good. It's a nice, plain movie. Uh, don't follow it up with the Beatles movie yesterday because then you're going to be disappointed but um, anyway I don't know there's some interesting names thrown about I don't think Renee Zellweger will be one of them Um, I'm sure she'll get a few votes but like it just doesn't feel like a very us kind of thing to do Um, so yeah I mean maybe Elizabeth Moss like I I think there's a lot of support for her especially among some of the younger quote unquote younger members of the group who I've spoken to are you not a younger Aquafina, friend? like Gotham Awards? <laughs> I mean, Aquafina could be, yeah, I think that that name could definitely be in, you know, in the mix, uh, as could Scarlett Johansson. You know, I think there are a lot of people love Marriage Story, and I think a lot of members of the critic circle, um, they vote differently from each other. I think that I tend to vote a little more strategically. You know, if there's like a number two, my, my second favorite performer of the year, I'm not going to vote for them because I don't want to give the, the competition votes. You know, like I want I want my number one to win. But a lot of people uh, vote more on sort of principle, and so I think yeah. marriage stories like you're like I know it has this issue or whatever. It's it's obvious, but it, but I I love it so much. I'm going to vote for it. I can kind of see that happening for that movie. Huh. I not to like I really I I don't want to knock Renee Zellweger because you know I, I've watched Judy. I think I she's doing. Like everything in that movie, I'm so glad that she has this like big role this year. But yeah, after I watched her smell last night and thinking about Wild Rose, I was like, Renee's performance is my third favorite troubled female musician performance of the year. And so like, I don't, I don't know, like if that's, I'm, I'm, I'm really hyped for this Elizabeth Moss train to get out of the station and start going. And I think critics awards are exactly where that momentum can start to build for her. So yeah, I feel like I've been saying for months, like if she won New York Film Critics Circle or a major critics award, like that could turn into a dark horse awards campaign. Although I don't know that it's as well funded as a lot of the other ones are, but yeah, you guys have the power, Richard. Although Joanna, we have a critics group too. So 
We have power too. Yeah, we do. <laughs> ours is a little bit harder to wrangle because it is much larger. We vote in the Critics' Choice Awards, uh, and our nominations happens all via email, so no one's like sitting in a room and, and haggling the way they do at the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. But um, how's your strategizing going, Joanna? Um, uh, well, my bribes are out to you and a few other people, okay, so I good. hope we're all going to like vote in a block together. Yep. No, um, I'm just <laughs> desperately trying to like get everything in so I can make an informed uh, choice by Friday. But we were talking about this, and not to sound too like privileged on this award season podcast that we have for Vanity Fair, but there are a couple movies we haven't gotten yet, and I'm I'm a little frustrated because how am I supposed? To, we we're voting on Friday. How am I supposed to vote if I haven't seen like all of the films? So if you're listening. Award screener people, it's not too late to overnight meet cats or whatever. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, the, what you were saying about um, strategy, strategy, Richard, I feel a lot in the nominations process. Like, I've been trying to figure out, like, do I want to put two popes in there? Because I like, like that movie, but I don't necessarily love it as much as some other things. But, like, I would like Jonathan Price to get in there. So, like, should I put him on there and not Adam Driver, even though I think Adam Driver is great? Um, and I don't know how much power I have in a group this large, but it does, uh, it maybe gives you some insight into how people vote for the Oscars, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I my from from the few Academy members I've actually who spoken to who like will tell me like how they vote. I think that they're a lot there are a lot of them are like a lot more strategic than we think, you know, like there is a kind of there's a there's a a, a technique to it almost that um, I don't know. It, it's probably impossible to take into full consideration because we don't know the the inner thoughts of, of these people. But um, I don't know. It's an interesting kind of thing to think about um, as more of these things come out. Is that like it's not just always my favorite thing is blank. There's sometimes there's a lot other things at work. Do, don't you think the academy? probably spends a fair amount of time thinking is this good for the academy oh, sure. is this good for the oscars and then they kind of get grandiose it's like is this good for america are we honoring the, the country by honoring yeah. the film yeah yeah um no totally and i think you know look i think the, the new york film critics circle does that too you know i i right. at least I, i'll speak for myself like i've only been in the group i think this will be my fourth vote with them um uh, but I, 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 you know, I found myself saying out loud to other members, I just don't think that's a very us movie, you know, or whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you want to preserve some imagined, you know, sanctity or, or what legacy or something. Um, but yeah, and then with the Academy, which is much more storied in its in its way, um, yeah, I would think absolutely we can't vote for that. Right. Yeah. Right. When I feel like hustlers could be in, have a trouble with that, you know. I think so. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because it's sort of like, oh, it's a stripper movie. Like, yeah. are we really it's gonna... fun? But yes, yeah. yeah. That's mm-hmm. so frustrating. It is so good. Um, but whereas for the critics, anyway, hustlers is exactly the kind of thing. Like, you know, even support the girls last year is maybe the closest comparison to being like, yeah, we're gonna stick our necks out for this. Yeah, my fearless forecast is I would be very surprised if I leave that room at Lincoln Center and J Lo has not won. I w- I, w- I would be. I, I think that's going to happen. But, but that, we'll is, that is interesting because that's that's critics basically saying like almost saying to the Academy, don't dismiss this right. as a piece of pop cultural yeah. you know, trash like this yeah. is seriously a real film achievement. For sure. I think that there is some of the talking to the Academy happening. I think a sort of debate among the group. And I'm sure this is true of other critics groups as well. But, you know, New York Film Critics Circle is the oldest in the country um, is like we don't want to serve as Oscar predictors. You know, we want yeah, it right. to be its own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so as much as we might be gesturing towards someone like Regina Hall or Jennifer Lopez or Adam Sandler or Cameron Diaz and being like, hey, like you, this, it is possible for people with performances like these to win awards. Um, I, I hope we don't think of it as an indirectly instructive way. You know, to But is that also a reason why you would avoid giving it to Renee? Sure. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 that's like actually kind of a handicap for her, right? But she'll get it in the Globes and all the other things, sure. And presumably. yeah, yeah, SAGs, presumably, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, all right, well, Richard, uh, while we're on the critical beat, uh, we wanted to talk about both the, the list that you and uh, Cam and Sonia published last week of the uh, best films and TV shows of the decade, and then um, this week, the best of the year. Um, you don't have to speak for Cam and Sonia, but we have critics' list for all three of you. Um, how was the process of putting together your list, though? You know, it's funny. It was something... I feel like we had a meeting about it and Cam said something about like, oh, it's all just made up. And I was like, you know what? That's true. It was sort of freeing <laughs> to think of it in those terms. So I just went through every movie, you know, at like pages and pages of movies released in the 2010s. And I just went it down to like the 10 that kind of struck me in that moment. And I wrote the list and then I just let it be what it is, you know, because like it was never going to be correct. There's no way to do that um, for especially for something as expansive as a 10 year you know, range of movies. Um, but I'm happy with the choices. I mean, my number one was Mad Max Fury Road. I sort of always knew that was going to be the case all year um, because I think it is the movie of the decade, if not the new century. Um, and um, yeah, I was I was happy to put some kind of smaller things like Princess Sid, a really tiny movie um, out of Chicago that is on Netflix that everyone should watch. I saw um, that the director of that tweeted it, which uh, must have been pretty. Yeah, yeah, no, he he's he's been he's um, he always seems very surprised that people have even seen his movie, let alone liked it. Um, so it's good that he's staying humble, I guess. Um, but you know, there were a lot of things I had to leave off, um, I, which is why I was glad that there was Cam, you know, kind of doing his own list uh, of thirty movies of the decade, which was a much uh, bigger undertaking than my ten. Um, so I think they're a nice complement to each other. And then we also had a similar thing uh, for best of the year. I think we have. Or uh, best of 2019. I don't think we have any overlap um, on our lists, uh, or if we do, it's only one or two movies. I think you both um, have uncut gems. Um, okay, that's right. That's the one. Yeah. There yeah. was. I think that's the only one. Yeah, um, but you know, he put Once Upon a Time on Hollywood on his. I didn't put that on mine, and I had Hustlers on mine. He, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I think it was a nice kind of dialogue with each other. Um, and then you have Sonia doing TV, which like I don't know how anyone ranks TV at this point because there are you know so many shows, but she seemed to have winnowed it down to like a really thoughtful list. Yeah, uh, Sonya figures out a way to, like, rank the other two alongside Chernobyl, which, like, could not possibly be more different. (laughs) Well, it's the two reactors, the other two reactors, right? (laughs) I love seeing Melancholia on here. I remember seeing that at Toronto and walking out, like, like, just in a daze, just like, what? was that yeah exactly and i think that's kind of the mindset i was going by when doing the list it was not necessarily my favorite like the things i would watch over and over again on a hungover sunday or something i wouldn't do that for melancholia certainly but there's just nothing else like that movie that existed for in in these 10 years and 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 it stuck with me since i saw it on a couch in my apartment on lower east side in 2011 or whatever and i just can't stop thinking about that movie eight years later so how could that not or yeah. even even the Phantom Thread, which I actually did not like at all mm-hmm. when I first saw it, and then I watched it again with my wife, and was like, "Okay, this is actually really good." <laughs> and then you st- you stopped uh, eating the omelet she had made you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then you just you, you just keep thinking about that film. You know, it just keep it comes up because exactly. it's it's haunting in that way. Yeah, yeah, it's a great list. Thank you. Yeah, can I ask you about one title on your best of the year list? Because um, Atlantic's uh, Mati Diop's movie, I think I'm pronouncing her name right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's on Netflix now. It's uh, one of the yeah. you know many Netflix releases this fall. And like I know about it because it was at Cannes and I had a profile for it, but I didn't really have a good sense of it. So do you want to just give an endorsement for that since so many people can watch it now? Yeah, that is a movie that was at Cannes. I believe that Diop was the first black woman to have a film in the main competition at Cannes, which is mm. sort of galling that that took that yeah. long. Really? That's um, wild. Uh, but yeah, she is a uh, French Senegalese. Uh, her father is a big Senegalese musician. Her uncle was a filmmaker from Senegal. Um, and so she sets her film into car. Uh, and it's basically what I really loved about Atlantics and I found so fascinating is that it's 
It's about the kind the, the current you know wave of migration happening from West Africa, North Africa, the Middle East uh, into Europe. Um, but it's really about the people who get left behind by that. And we see a lot of movies about usually you know young men arriving in you know Berlin or Paris or wherever and, and, and experiencing that. And those are important stories to be told for sure. But I really appreciated that Atlantic's um, turns its turns around and looks at the people in Senegal who are like, well, we're all our young men just left, you know. Um, and I think it's really fascinating. There's a real, really righteous kind of economic anger in the film. It's kind of a ghost movie, which is really kind of cool, unexpected and cool. Um, it's much more of a genre movie than I thought. I thought it was going to be a sort of you know social issues drama, and it is that. But it has this added element to it that I think is really fascinating. So you know, that's the kind of opportunity you have when putting together a list like this. That hopefully it's a movie that if people haven't heard of it, um, they will seek it out. And you know, thank you to Netflix for making it so widely available. Yeah, and I believe it's going to be Senegal's submission for the Best Foreign Language Film uh, Oscar, which I keep getting confused because France has this and Les Miserables and Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and, but this movie is, I guess, is a Senegalese co-production, so it's eligible, whereas they didn't submit Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Just keeping track of which films are actually going to be eligible for the Oscars this year for foreign language is really hard. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it be, it's not about the language it's in. I mean, it's not. I mean, the movie is not in French, but um, it has a lot but of she is ti- ties. To, it has yeah. a lot of ties to France, exactly. So, yeah, it's kind of a complicated thing, but uh, it's a it's a really worthy movie. Uh, it it did it won a prize at Cannes, um, justifiably, um, and yeah. So I hope people seek it out, and uh, you know, it certainly stoked my curiosity to uh, see more films uh, made about this topic and made, um, uh, you know, in West Africa. Um, okay, back to uh, some of the big Kahuna movies that are starting to surface for us now. Uh, so when we talked last week, Richard had seen 1917. His review had just gone up. Uh, now we've all seen 1917. It kind of is one of those movies that was lying in wait for a long time and then popped up everywhere and we all got a chance to see it. Uh, and I think we're, we, we might be the 1917 fan club around here. I think we're all really crazy about it, right? I'm obsessed with it. I love it. <laughs> it like shot up to my like top, it's in my like top five, maybe top three of the year. I loved this movie. I absolutely adored it. So, yeah. I might be the least, you know, I liked it. I thought it was good. Part of me thinks it's a little overly impressed with with a um, innovation or whatever you want to call it, a gimmick that is kind of basically the same as like every first person shooter of the last like 25 years. It's basically like a <laughs> is- video game. There uh, was one one moment where like the gun was sitting out, and I was like, "Oh, this is very video game." But then like right. it goes back. I don't know. There's like part of it, the, the 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 gimmick or whatever, right? Is the which we talked about is this qua- seeming one shotness of the film, which of course is like digitally sewn together. But um, the way in which it makes you stick with this one character and stick with this horror as he's processing it, I don't know. It worked for me. I I I went in really skeptical. I was like, "Okay, give me your quote unquote." one shot movie Sam it is and then I was like oh no this is really effective so it worked on me but well, I Mike, hear you and, and Mike you should also I mean you're you're loyal to the Kaiser Wilhelm so you don't you don't like this movie about, <laughs> about I, don't, these I thought it was propagandist <laughs> yeah uh, and I'm going on Seb Gorka's uh, podcast oh, to talk about it later Finally. today actually <laughs> uh, no no I mean I think it I, I feel like the first Somebody, I think Matt Patches wrote saying, you know, it's a noble failure and it's and it's sort of technique ultimately betrays the story, which I didn't feel that strongly about it. But toward the late middle, I was starting to kind of be like, OK, I don't know. I don't know. It works. But 
it felt like maybe the story ends up, it, it does get a little bit of a short shrift after a while um, because you are kind of stuck in the format. Um, but that said, it's gorgeous, uh, really great performances by actors that I had was not familiar with before. Um, and it definitely, I think, more than any other World War One movie I can think of gives you that sense of being in the trenches. I mean, a- any movie since... Um, Kubrick's Paths of Glory, right? I mean, it, it it has that kind of like you are there in this hell. Uh, yeah. So I, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was very good, but I just wasn't kind of like fully rapturous, I guess. So I wanted to point that out. <laughs> yeah, I got the, um, I felt like the story really lasted within the style because so much of the point of the movie is like, how to endure, how to like find your way through this hell, how to be a human being amid all of this. Like, I, you know, all of the the brief moments where he gets to like, you know, talk to a baby or have a fun conversation with his friend or like, you know, they talk about their childhood. Like they stand out so much because of all the the awfulness going on around them. And I feel like the, the presence of the famous people, which I know a lot of people say is distracting and like, it's not not distracting. Like you don't not notice that that's Andrew Scott or Colin Firth or Benedict Cumberbatch or whatever. Um, but just like letting them kind of pop up and being like, oh yeah, hey, here's a person who I know. Here's like, this thing that would be light in other circumstances. I, I feel like the world, this nightmarish world was so effectively realized that all the little like bits of light within it or a celebrity or whatever really stood out for me. And it made you kind of like appreciate the the cherry blossoms falling or the, you know, a baby looking at him or anything like that. It, um, it, it got me sucked into that world. It, it, yeah. It's, you mentioned yeah, the ahead. famous people and Mark Strong has that line. Um, uh, I know you already know this, but it wouldn't do to dwell on it. And, um, and the whole movie really is just like a one giant stiff upper lip. It's just yeah. kind of like, yeah. how much can you endure without complaining too much? Yeah, basically. Um, the way that they found to light the nighttime is some of the most beautiful like s- filmmaking I think I've seen in a long time. I don't know. I don't know why I was so taken with this movie. I, I can't. I can't really fully explain it. I will say this: it passes. So I, you know, I've been watching all these screeners at home. We have a really nice TV. A lot of people wanted me to see this in the theater. I think you should see this in the theater. I think it is a gorgeous film, and I probably should have seen it in the theater, but I watched it at home. And uh, my roommate is very uninterested in award screeners, and she just like we'll never sit down and she does not care that we have access to all these movies she's like the the height of doesn't care she got so sucked into 1917 she sat down she got emotional i was like this is this is a powerful like piece of filmmaking i think so um i don't know in our house it was a big deal and yeah the the celebrity cameos um didn't bother me except i think the only one that stuck out to me was cumberbatch and i was like i i don't know i, I don't know how i feel about this but the other ones it didn't didn't flat me at all well, so. i think cumberbatch has become such a cameo unto himself like anytime <laughs> yeah. he's in something it's like oh it's a kind of a little winky joke that it's benedict yeah. cumberbatch well and his arrival is so like he is the, the person who he's trying to reach basically so when you get to him it's like it's been built up where you're like all right who's right. he gonna be yeah, no, I, I would say anecdotally in terms of like interest in the movie, um, kind of similar to your experience, Joanna, is that like that was the the one screener that my family was really disappointed I didn't have over Thanksgiving. <laughs> they were like, what about that one? Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, don't have it. I do have it now. But like so maybe Christmas I'll come home, you know, the, the triumphant uh, person. But um, but yeah, like there, I, I don't know. I think that movie will be appealing to a lot of people in a way that maybe something smaller you know wouldn't be so i think that despite mixed reaction to it so far i think that thing has got a lot of awards uh juice in it one prediction i'm ready to make right now is roger deakins will win for cinematography because i went to this academy screening that was kind of like a crafts academy crowd 
and partly because the actors are not as well known, but the first time I've ever been in a screening where the cinematographer got the biggest round of applause, both at the beginning when they when Sam Mendes was introducing everybody and at the end when his name came on screen. Yeah. Yeah. It was just like, okay, people like the cinematography, <laughs> but it is sort of a, a, a gaudy show of expertise and prowess and, you know, all the rest of it. So, I mean, an ambition. So I, I think that that's pr- pretty much a slam dunk at this and point. And he finally won his Oscar, right? Yeah, he won he from did. Blade yes. Runner, the classic we all remember, right. Blade Runner 2049. So it would be kind of funny if after like <laughs> this, like Susan Lucci run of not winning, that the dam is just now broken and Roger Deakins it, just wins every year. I, I think yeah. I could easily yeah. see that happening. Yeah. Well, that was kind of what happened with Lebesky because um, Children of Men was such a um, like a phenomenon, and it got just totally ignored by the Oscars. Uh, and then he won three in a row. Like he he kind of had that broke that streak in the same way. I, I just I think that I, I I like can't argue, Mike, with you calling it gaudy. I like I completely agree. It's very flashy, but it's it, for me it serves the emotional journey in a way that like doesn't make it just seem like oh you're showing off what you can do with like camera tricks and lighting. I just and you know a lot of that comes down to performance, and so you know I I just. Yeah, I, I just want to I want to gush about this movie because I'm going to be like the, the sour apple about the next movie. So I just want everyone to know I love yeah. cinema. I love cinema <laughs> and films about men. Yeah, I saw, films I saw about you. men. <laughs> but but no, I, I do think just going back to Katie, something you said earlier and without spoiling this movie any more than we already have, um, you know, it is the scene where he meets a baby where I was starting to be like, I'm not sure that I'm really buying this scenario here. Uh Like I get that you had to do something, but it, it it starts to, some things start to feel like a stretch within the confines Mm -hmm. of the, of the, um, concept yeah. the concept um <laughs> universal has sort of limply uh, offered up that actress is a supporting actor contender supporting actress she contender. has more That's... lines than anna paquin so, <laughs> well, she mean... does she actually i think technically does have more li- like someone was like okay when, when comparing irishman to 1917 and i did get someone on twitter was like you don't like the irishman because it's all about men i'm like okay um <laughs> but someone was like wait she was just praising 1917 i was like yeah but i think the woman in 1917 has more lines if i'm being honest with you um yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, and, and like I I you know we haven't even said Richard did when we first talked about this movie. We haven't even said the name George McKay. George McKay is like the anchor performance of this film. Yes, I think that he should be considered um, for his performance in this, and you know, having to carry a camera on you for the entirety of a movie is is no mean feat and he just does an incredible job both with a stiff upper lip and then maybe with a not so stiff upper lip but so, for a minute I really thought you meant that he was like doing some of the cinematography I was like wait what How, he wasn't carrying a camera uh, he, he might have at one <laughs> point probably, we don't know yeah, anyway. who knows in that movie <laughs> but I mean look if you had been through a really hard thing and then at the end you saw Richard Madden you'd cry too <laughs> I, I, I cried and I just was like sitting there on the couch so I don't know you know Oh, Richard the, Madden. The that is a stiff upper lip. Uh, oh, <laughs> beautiful hair. Wow, uh, we. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, George McKay is is very very good. I agree with you. I think he should really be in the mix. And if he's not, it's only because people don't won't remember his name. Right. So let's say it one more time. George McKay. <laughs> well, also the best actor field is like so monstrous this year that it's so like it's hard for anybody to get in there. Um. So. And if any Universal Awards consultants are listening to this at like 3x speed because they're forced to, just let me just say, make everyone learn George <laughs> McKay's name. 
<laughs> and Mike, he's in your uh, favorite movie, Captain Fantastic. So you are, uh, you can say you were on uh, the bandwagon. I was really early, early. To, I did not know his name then, but yes, come on. <laughs> one thing I wanted to mention quickly about George McKay is that um, one of his in development projects is a music biopic about the Kinks. So like maybe Ooh. that's his Oscar movie. I don't know. Like yeah. those, those movies always do well for for young actors. It is, seems. Will he play Ray Davies or do we know? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, oh no, I he's can... Davy Davies. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, but so we're, we want to talk about Irishman, um, but just keep thinking about 1917 busting out here and then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood being a big contender. It is such a macho Oscar year. But I think an interesting one, like I think there have been much more boring macho movies, like uh, Hacksaw Ridge was a Best Picture nominee not that long ago. Um, but really male, like a lot of about the decline of the, the mid-century white man and, and all the things that that means, which I find intriguing, but I also can get if some people are going to get exhausted, which maybe we all be by February. Um, okay, we've been promising to talk about The Irishman. Uh, it is on Netflix. It seems popular. It's impossible to know how many people are watching it or especially watching the whole thing. But, like, there's Irishman memes, which I didn't necessarily see coming uh, before Thanksgiving weekend. Um, Mike, I am I think you tweeted that you were re-watching it last night, so you might be uh, the first person who <laughs> watched The Irishman twice. I have spent six and a half. I did not finish it, but I watched because I watched it. I admit, I confess, I watched it on my phone on a plane. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, <laughs> and then, Marty. Uh, I'm sorry, Marty, but it was actually fine. He and just then stopped I, the three deck speed thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Closed his podcast app. <laughs> um, and then uh, I watched it again at home with my wife. And so I spent six and a half hours in the last 48 hours watching The Irishman. Um, but actually, it was great to watch it again. I, I actually kind of reconsidered something that I was theorizing on Twitter yesterday. I, I, the first time through, I kind of thought it was a story about a um, like a sociopath pleaser, which is a dangerous type, you know, that, that De Niro's character is incapable of feeling, but... So, but he kind of, in order to steer himself correctly, he just makes sure that he ha- is loyal to somebody and they kind of tell him what's right and wrong. And unfortunately, that means that he gets told that he's right when he like murders people for a living. Um, but the second time through, I was kind of t- questioning that. I think actually it is a very felt performance. It's another, it's not stiff upper lip, it's like emotionally strangled. I'm familiar with this being an Irish American man. <laughs> an Irish man. Uh, you know, emotionally strangled mid-century man um and and uh and that makes it even sadder you know you just think this guy does want to be a good person and he does care about people in his life and he's just really mixed up uh in terms of his you know whatever you want to call it values and morality but you can kind of see why um so i i do th- i found it incredibly fascinating and honestly all the de-aging and everything made me really really interested in De Niro just as like a as a figure as an artist as a person who's just been around for a long time I think the biggest problem with the de-aging that's an interesting maybe unanticipated one is we know what De Niro and Pacino and Pesci all looked like 20 years ago and they looked nothing like this Um, whereas when you age someone you have no way of knowing what they're going to look like in 30 years you can go back and look but who cares at that point Um, so it is kind of uncanny but then somebody my friend Brendan McDonald um, pointed out on Twitter, like that also makes it interesting because this character is not De Niro, it's Frank, 
when you go back 20 years. You know, De Niro wasn't <laughs> wasn't a lumbering sort of slab <laughs> of ham, you know, t- uh, when he was 40 um, or at least when he was 30. So so I don't know. I found it incredibly interesting, like lots of problems. I mean, Pacino's just like overacting out the wazoo, but oh, sort of in it. a great fun it. way. Like, how can you how can you? It's not a problem. It's just a it's just a fact. Right. You're just <laughs> yeah. like the scene where he's like screaming at everybody, <laughs> calling them motherfuckers. I mean, it's just like it's so extreme, but it's wonderful. I'm, gl- I'm I feel blessed that we have this man to to chew scenery the way that he does. And I, I don't know. I, I, uh, but we got to talk about the women thing. Obviously, it's something I'm not sure how intentional it was on the second time through. I'm a little I, worried it's not that intentional. I I told and I want Joanna to talk about this because we've already had some of this conversation. I totally bought the way that it's intentional. And there's been a couple people already writing about Anna Paquin specifically, who is so, so notably silent. Like she really only has seven lines, but she's in a bunch of other scenes not saying anything. I mean, that's um, that's clearly intentional. The yeah, Anna Paquin like she's there it. as the silent witness. And uh, and but I think that com- uh, also added with uh, um, you know, there's this road trip that's the frame story, kind of within the frame story, and they have all these shots of the wise kind of chatting off camera in the distance like with no one really paying attention to what they're saying and you don't even hear the dialogue I just think that the women are present in this movie but silent in a way that feels really specific where women had no role in the society that these men had built up you're seeing how toxic this society was you kind of wonder maybe if they'd let women do a thing or two they would have turned out quite so badly um but so on the other hand, they do do stuff. And and Pesci's wife, you know, we find that she's like mob royalty. And she actually, there's like one scene where you see her doing something, which is covering up for for a crime. This is early on. It's not a big spoiler or anything. It's a really interesting scene. So so I don't. I, I, that made me wonder, like, it, how much of it was a choice? Um, were they really? They weren't pushed totally into the background. They were pushed like eighty five percent into the background. Yeah, and they were pushed by Frank specifically. Like, he kind of swaps out one wife for another and pays as little attention to either of them, uh, even though they continue right. to kind of show up in scenes and you see their presence in his life. Um, and I think Hoffa's wife, too, is a, is a make to your point, uh, Mike, where you see uh, her, like, she he's praising her as having some, you know, he, she's advising him and he kind of praises her as the brains behind the operation. And then you see a shot where she's getting in a car that she wonders if it might be bombed and there's this really big moment yeah. of tension. Um, so I get that, like, it's not this, like, complete all the women are sidelined and it's a, it's a commentary all the way through. But I, I did feel like, especially with Anna Paquin's presence, like it is there to remind you of how silent they were forced to be. And of course her silence is what eventually like devastates her father because she's watching and knowing what he is and not speaking to him for it. Yeah. Uh, but Joanna, you you gave this all a hearty eye roll, which I do not think is unwarranted because women no. are silent on screen so much that to say you're doing it intentionally doesn't necessarily uh, get you off the hook. So do you want to talk more about that? I mean, let me preface by saying (laughs) I am glad that this movie exists and I'm glad that everyone is so excited to talk about it. Like, that's fun. It's fun that everyone's like talking about this, you know, film. It did not work for me emotionally. I did not find an emotional way into this movie. And and because of that, like, it just didn't work for me. But um, I will say, you know, to your point about, uh, you know, the women in the silence, that would work for me, but but then the the pivotal moment of the movie. I mean, we've been spoiling the movie throughout, so spoilers for Jimmy Irishman, I guess. Um, but uh, you know, the pivotal the moment when you're really supposed to feel like this pain for De Niro's character 
comes, you know, as he feels the loss of his relationship with this Anna Paquin character, who we just don't know at all, who is just a complete cipher to us. And that then I can't feel that for him because I'm like, I don't even know who she is. So I don't know what you're missing out on. And I, I don't I don't feel this at all. Um Someone, I think it was Russ Fincher on Twitter came back at me with like, I think that's intentional. It's like, it's supposed to be not, um, you know, him not knowing us, not knowing her is him not knowing her and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, sure, I can see that. Every, every argument everyone makes is convincing to me. I'm like, I, I hear you. I think you're all very smart about the Irishman. It just does not land for me. And then when I think about trying to do it again, I'm like, oh, I should watch it again and really just like try to see what everyone sees in it. And then I'm like, do I have three and a half hours to do that right now? I don't. So, you know, like, <laughs> you I, have gave, a lot of I gave it up to do. I on do. Your other, I gave for your critics I, awards. I know I gave it I gave it my three and a half hours and maybe a couple of years from now I'll give it another three and a half hours but I don't have that time to carve it out and what and something I will say before I stop being like the lone dissenting voice on Irishman on this podcast is every single person even if they love this movie every single person that I've heard talk about it has also said it could lose about 40 something minutes Ooh, and I'm like oh, no, you know no. yes Yes, that's yeah. That's, I actually don't know that I agree with that. I mean, I I I get it, but I actually obviously because I went back to watch it uh, all over again the next <laughs> sure. day. Um, sure, but I kind of enjoy the fact. I mean, look, it's crazy. Like, there's one scene where they reference Joe Kennedy having a stroke, and then there's a shot of somebody in a wheelchair <laughs> on Florida. like a deck in Florida in a, at a sunset and you just think that was minimally $20,000 for like <laughs> one second of film and that's the thing Martin Scorsese can do now with Netflix money and I said that to my wife like laughing and she goes yeah but it's such a good shot you know and it's true <laughs> so you kind of have to like I, I mean I, but again that's kind of meta but like I, I enjoy the fact that these guys are just they can do whatever they want now they've earned it yeah, no, there's so many, like, large-scale scenes of, like, a Huffer rally or the big party for Frank that takes up, like, a big pivotal moment in the middle of the film where they just had all these people and all these visual effects on top of all the de-aging. Like, you feel that money in there, and that's not that's not really about the, the length of the movie, but there is just something about... He wants to lay out a story about time. He wants to show how all of these people like thrive and then all die eventually anyway. It then takes time to kind of to watch all these people and watch all of that happen. And I, I'm not sure that like every single minute of it is used, um, but I, I I appreciated it. I wouldn't I wouldn't cut 40 minutes out of it. I wouldn't cut yeah. 10 minutes out. To your point, Katie, I the first time through, it was such an immersion in a world that the second time through you know, two hours in, I was like, wow, I can't believe we're already at this point now. <laughs> right. yeah. Like, I felt like it was a lifetime, the first one, in kind of a great way. Again, I was stuck on a plane all day, so I had nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but I do think that that is kind of like part of the part of the value of it or the, the quality of it. I kind of wonder, like, at, you know, now that a lot of people have seen the movie uh, over the holiday, um, certainly the discourse is, is, is lively on this one. My impression after the Thanksgiving weekend, uh, when people first were able to put eyes on the movie, I kind of think it didn't fare that well. Like, I think it sort of, to me, it sort of seemed to have become like kind of more of a meme and like a joke in a way, that, kind of the way that Joker did. Um, I just, I just didn't see a ton of like super serious discourse about the movie beyond the thing with Anna Paquin's character, you know, and. Mm-hmm. 
And so I don't know. I just I wonder if like that does that matter to the academy? Are they not like are they not on film Twitter or whatever? Like maybe so, probably so. But I don't know. I, I was expecting maybe a little bit more. I guess like veneration of the movie once yeah. people had seen it, and I kind of saw more people making jokes about how long it was and you know stuff like that. Or the maleness. I mean, I saw yeah. a lot of yeah. smart women be like, "Okay, fifteen minutes in, and I don't yeah. think I need to watch yeah. anymore." And I don't mean to minimize that. That is serious discourse about the movie, and it's a conversation well worth having. I just mean that, like, I didn't, I didn't see a sort of wide ranging conversation about the film. I saw either yeah. that take, um, which is you know a lot of interesting pieces about it, or jokes. And so I wonder if that how that affects its like awards chances. And the memification, we've talked about this before, but often that comes directly from Netflix. Netflix will create yeah. these memes as a way to raise awareness around, you know, they did this with Bird Box, like as a way to raise awareness around their release. And so if you like, I, you know, we talked about this last year, I heard a bunch of people say, I'm just watching Bird Box so I can understand the memes. So if there's a bunch of people who are watching <laughs> The Irishman just so they can understand the memes, that's a win for Netflix. So, you know, I, I but, but to your point, Richard, that's, it's not exactly, you know, highbrow, highbrow discourse course but like i don't i don't know how martin scorsese feels about that is he just like whatever eyeballs on my film i'm excited about or is he you know penning an op-ed in new york times about it right now about like this this wasn't meant to be a meme i don't know i mean i think if, i think if you're netflix you're happy to see people talking about it to the degree that they are because i think that was a big not a problem with roma but roma didn't have this presence at all like, there weren't memes about roma it wasn't fun to talk about like you couldn't like make a joke about one of the lines from it i mean i'm looking at the netflix twitter account and their bio just is late and wearing shorts, which is a really funny Irishman joke, I think. Um, so, in, and then same thing with Joker. Like, Joker had discourse, had a bunch of memes about it, but people kept talking about it, and it made a billion dollars. And I think... Yes, the uh, Academy voters on film Twitter, but also they're just like, it's going to be at the top of your mind, and then you get to go kind of uh, go watch it, hopefully. Yeah, and really, what are movies but long gifts, you know? So... <laughs> Wow. With sound. Sound gifts. Oh, sound. Damn it. That's right. Of course. They have sound. Uh, before we wrap Irishman, uh, we may be talking about it yet for months, but uh, I just wanted to throw out something that uh, uh, that Chris Rosen tweeted where he said, at this point, I feel like a surprise nomination for Anna Paquin could be possible. Um which I don't know is entirely serious, <laughs> but it, it does feel like the Irishman's like Oscar juggernaut status is very cemented by all of this. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I could see that too. Um, it's a joke, but I could, it's also the kind of thing that could sort of happen because as we were talking about, people would just say, well, we need to kind of protect Marty and let everyone know that this is not a sexist movie and or something. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I could see it happen, yeah. but I don't, again, I, I don't think, look, there are many wonderful, uh, Anna Paquin performances. I don't know that this is like her best, but she did her job. You know, yeah. I don't think like it's an act of violence on her that she's in this movie <laughs> with seven <laughs> lines. But, um, but, uh, but I do think that I, I would say that the discussion of it is a good thing. Um, yeah. and even the memeing of it means that people care, people are talking about it. It's a thing. I think Marty was, if, if I may call him Marty, um, <laughs> was actually very shrewd to kind of start this, or, or continue once it started this kind of cinema conversation. It's almost an inherent, it's like an implicit comeback to the idea that, ah, oh, this is pretty boring. I heard some people complaining on Twitter, or saw some people complaining that it's boring. I didn't find it boring at all. Um, but there's kind of like, it's almost implied that you're a bit of a vulgarian if you are going to say it's boring uh, and you only like comic book movies or something like that. You know, so I think that, I think that it's very well positioned to play a very big role in award season 
And how about, I just like, the performances are amazing, but I feel like Joe Pesci, I never really thought that much about Joe Pesci, to be perfectly honest. Obviously, he's amazing in Goodfellas, and then we all love, like, my cousin Vinny, and then after that, you know, but even then, in both my of those, he was kind of like a clown. I know you're not the demographic for Home Alone, but Home well, Alone. Well, okay, Home Alone, right, sure. But in all of these, he's kind of a clown, and in this one, he is... He's not a clown. It's a quiet. And it's an incredibly strong thoughtful. performance. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think he's my favorite performance in the film. You know, it's I, haunting and yeah. and and almost disturbing. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Well, I mean, and that's a category. I mean, I, I even I, who did not like the Irishman very much, really liked Pesci, especially in in the like t- very end of the movie. I thought his performance was incredible, and um, that's a category. I mean, is that Brad Pitt's category? Like, is that a category that is open for discussion? I think they're running Pacino in that category as well. Yeah. So, like, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, but like. I, I, you know, Pesci in there, it makes me really excited and happy. And I, and I would love to just see him. I don't know. What's a Pesci Awards campaign like? Is it going to be like uh, a fun, it's like... It's nothing. It's him refusing to do absolutely any promotion, oh. which is, uh, like, I think at the New York Film Festival, someone asked him a question and he just said no in response and, like, didn't talk anymore. <laughs> and has, yeah. as far as I know, has had no interest in doing promo whatsoever. I still think he's going to get nominated, but I think he's going to be like, fine, if you want to nom- nominate me, I'm not doing the work. Okay, so like the anti-Richard E. Grant. Like whatever Richard E. (laughs) Grant is, the opposite of that. Yeah, and then he's going to get the nomination anyway, which like maybe proves his greatness. He should, though. I mean, I think Pacino, look, I it's a lot of fun. His accent, I don't know what's going on, but, I, you know, points for effort, A for effort, on trying to do a Midwestern accent. Um, but, like, you know, at the end of the day, Pesci, that's the performance where it really gets under your skin, I think. Um, yeah. I mean, De Niro is is kind of doing something incredible. Anyway, it's different. It's a lead. But but uh, Pesci, I think, is the... To me, I just never thought that much about him as an actor. I thought he was like... Like, he's good. He's fun. Like, you know, do I amuse you? All that. It's great. But, like, not yeah. in this one. Yeah. I think Pesci getting nominated would indicate a sort of, I don't know, wider embrace of this movie that um, comes fraught with, you know, certain issues, whether it's, you know, w- women's roles in the film, uh, the Netflix of it all, you know. But I think there's enough there that a certain strain of Academy voter, Hollywood type, will embrace because it's. It's like an old movie, you know, like it, it, yeah. it, it's like, you know what? God damn it. Yeah, we're Hollywood. We're going to make a three and a half hour movie. We're going to put these old guys in it who have been we've been loving for 40 plus years. Like it's going to be about the mob. It's, you know, like it's very like defiantly not a contemporary movie, despite its technology, despite its, you know, its distributor. Um, and I don't know. I feel like that's a narrative people can get behind. What I would be interested in seeing is like, does weirdly Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is literally about some of that stuff eat into Irishman's support or vice versa, you know? Well, they're going to also have the ability to do a pretty compelling sort of it's time career capper because they're they're now they're already talking about this as the fourth chapter in a story that began Uh with mean streets and continues with goodfellas and then casino so you can start a you can sort of get that kind of like last um sequel of lord of the rings type oscar campaign (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is this is scorsese's return to the king Mm -hmm. yeah you know for real i think it's his hobbit trilogy that's what i think (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they are both pretty short. 
All three of them, actually. Yeah. I mean, it would be interesting, and like, who knows? Maybe this is still a little women's role to play. But if you've got these two, like, you know, mid-century men looking back at what they've done in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Irishmen, and something splits the difference and kind of goes through the huge, like, other lanes next to that. But I don't know that anything is positioned for that yet. But do you know what I mean when I say that? Like, I feel like the same kind of people will like those, will will yes. appreciate those movies. The same kind yeah. of voter, I guess. But yeah. if I had yeah. to say, uh, if I had to make a prediction as Gen X person, they will go with the boomer one. Yeah, hmm. the Gen X one will lose. Right. No one cares about us. We're not. We don't have enough people. <laughs> Sorry, who's speaking? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Anna Paquin, is that you? Oh, well, now for the back half of the episode, uh, we're going to have Joanna's interview with Kristen Anderson Lopez and Robert Lopez, uh, writers of The Many Earworms, a Frozen 2 that I cannot get out of my head personally. Um, how was your conversation with them, Joanna? Oh, it was really it was really fun. Um, there's a lot of singing in this interview, which I didn't expect. I kind of love any time like, someone you're interviewing breaks into song. Uh, and they talked about some of the sort of surprising inspirations behind these songs. Uh, Katie, you, you had this great... Um, tweet uh, over the weekend about how you walked out of Frozen 2 being like, I don't know if any of these songs are catchy. And then now you're like, oh, I live with a kid and I listen to the soundtrack and I got a screener and I can't, I like, <laughs> it's just part I of keep, my life now. <laughs> I keep listening to the soundtrack. Like, cause I had the same reaction. I was like, I don't know that this is as catchy. And then I was like, oh wait, it definitely is. So um, yeah, here, here are uh, Kristen and Bobby to talk about. And they like, by the way, they are huge. We don't talk enough about like, this is a double EGOT. Robert Lopez is a double EGOT winner. Like this is this is little gold men prime. He has all uh, the little gold here. men there are. Yes. So um, you know, please enjoy this conversation with uh, the Lopez's. All right. So I want to start by asking you about my favorite, most surprising uh, song of the movie, which is the Kristoff like 80s power ballad song. And I was just talking to Jonathan Groff and he was saying, I didn't know how they would get a mountain man like Kristoff to sing in this film. So what was putting that that song together like for you? Oh, that was the most fun. We had the best time writing it. And everything really comes out of story, and we're in, we're so inspired by um, the stories that Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck, you know, bring to us and say, let's flesh this out. How can we get Kristoff singing? We had originally written a song for Kristoff called "Get This Right," um, which was about him putting this huge amount of pressure on himself, and it was totally a comedy song, but it kind of fell on the ground because we for many reasons. So then we found this other moment where he's been trying and trying and trying and he's just been left in the woods. And we thought this was this great moment for him to feel his feelings in a real way and that there's nothing better than a man feeling his feelings in a real way at a bar, like a karaoke bar, when you see those guys being like, we're in heaven, oh yeah. Um, And we thought maybe that would be this way to have fun, but also really feel the depth of his, his love for Anna. Yeah, and we, I, mean, I think we just lived for a moment. We had never done this before, but where the, where the, uh, the distorted guitars kick in. I mean, come on, that is the, that is the quintessential moment of, of the 80s, and it, it just seemed to be perfect for Kristoff. Um, one of the things we had to do was give permission to go to this stylized place, which is where the reindeers are better than people reprise was really helpful because it gave us this ramp 
um, that allowed us to go into fantasy for a second, that allowed the animators who, basically there was like one little note at the top of our lyric that said, feel free to take this to an 80s video kind of place. <laughs> <laughs> they, felt, they felt quite free. Uh, I remember, um, yeah, they, they, they got this idea that Sven would actually move his mouth and say those, say those words. And I think that's, that's the moment where we started to realize like, oh, this is gonna go off the rails in kind of a great way. Um, we were so, what's so great is um, when we give a song to Disney, it's not necessarily in its finished form. Um, sometimes they, they say, great, we're gonna run with this for a little while and then we'll get back to you. And so they did with this and they said, we had told them, let us know if you want us to add some harmonies to this song. There were no harmonies yet. And they said, we're thinking maybe lots of reindeer singing harmonies. So that, that allowed us to go to that stacked queen meets, meets Chicago kind of yeah. place, um, which was so much fun. And Bobby laid down like 18 different tracks and then Jonathan Groff did them 18 times. So not only is this a solo for Jonathan Groff, but it's actually 18 Jonathan Groffs to try and make up for the fact that we are ashamed and will be for the rest of our lives that he didn't sing in Frozen 1, in the first one. other than that ditty. You're like, can this be the end of that now? <laughs> <laughs> Never come with, we gave you 18 Groffs. Um, he said that before he started recording, you guys showed him some videos on YouTube of like inspiration. Do you remember what that was? I think I we just went down the 80s power ballad rabbit hole and here's the thing, I grew up totally loving those songs and living those songs. And when my 13-year-old boyfriend Sergio broke up with me, I was listening to Brian Adams and um, and Chicago and all of those people. And and we really wanted to. Oh, you honor. dumped him. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we did it. I dumped him. He dumped me. Um, it was middle school, but. We really wanted to honor the amazing thing that all of those musicians did, which was empower men to feel big feelings and express them. And something has been lost in the 30 years since then where I, I, don't, I don't feel in a lot of male-driven rock songs that empowerment to just go full on emotional. Um, the, the culture has gotten a lot less sincere in 30 years. Yeah. Let's just say that. Absolutely. Um, to circle back to sort of the beginning of, a, uh, of approaching this project, what are some of the cha like particular challenges of writing a sequel musical, a musical that is a sequel to a project you've already done? It's funny, we didn't even realize this until press time, but this is the first musical sequel Disney Animation ever did. So it was a, um, you know, we were, we were foraging new territory and um, it was a little bit tricky because you would think, uh, you know, when you do a sequel, often you bring back musical themes, but we didn't want to retell old story beats. These songs are very tailored for story beats. And so what, what we thought of at first is maybe this is act two of a larger arced musical. So Frozen 1 is act one, Frozen 2 is act two. It's the same story, it's just the next chapter. And luckily we also had amazing collaborators in Chris Buck and Jennifer Lee. And they, they instantly said, we're not gonna redo Frozen 1. We're going to go more mature, darker. Um, we're going to maybe even go into a bit of a different genre, which they did. It's a mystery. This is, it, there's still the DNA, it's still a musical, but these girls are seeking truth um, in, a, in a place of chaos and change. 
and it's a much more grown-up uh, musical. And so we didn't have to worry about trying to do what we did before. We All we had to do was trust our collaborators and get inspired by them. And a lot has changed, even in just the short time between Frozen 1 and Frozen 2, both in stage musical theater and in movie musicals. I was, I just think the popularity of something like um, your own stuff and then Hamilton and then La La Land and movie music, I feel like we're just in an upward swing of broader popularity of musical, like more receptivity to musicals. Does that change at all your approach in how you do things or are you just same as it ever was? When we were starting out, musicals were sort of uh, lower on the totem pole of culture and one of the great things in our in our life is I feel like we've seen that turn around and people have embraced musicals in a new way. I think um, you know people people are less resistant to characters breaking out into song but you still have to do the work of making it not awkward and horrible because there's nothing worse than when a character breaks into song for no good reason. <laughs> um, I, I was going to say that in this world where we're getting more and more digital and less connected, there's still something so human about singing. And I, I think I have to believe that's what this resurgence of loving musicals is about, that when we're singing something that someone else is singing, it's a way we can connect in a, in in an authentic way, especially if we're all in the same place at the same time, like a movie musical or a, or a Broadway musical where you're all experiencing it together. It's, I think it's something that existed before humans even spoke is song. And I think it might be the thing that saves us all from becoming robots. <laughs> um, one of my favorite things that you guys talked about in the first movie is the way that you snuck uh, the villain song into a classic love song, right? You think you're watching in the first one, you're watching a love song, it's the villain song. Right, that's um, how ex-boyfriends work. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there, are there any kind of um, subversions or, or um, unexpected surpri musical surprises that people should be on the lookout for in Frozen 2? One thing they can be inspired by is um, Olaf's song was really something we kind of wrote because when you're in the middle of these writing these original musicals, it does feel like you're trapped in a spooky enchanted forest that you can't get out of because some of the things are working, but many things are not. And you're, you kind of have to just say, okay, I'm gonna trust the process. I'm gonna trust my collaborators. I know there's a deadline and I know we have a release and 18 months from now, this will all be, make sense. This will, 18 months from now, this will be a finished movie and it'll be great. And uh, I trust in that. And so inspired by that, I kind of got this idea for this, this will all make sense when I am older lyric for Olaf, but it was really sort of every, everybody, it was a protest and it was what everyone working on the film was feeling at the moment. Or even like three months from now, this won't be driving me so insane. Three months from now, we'll at least have gotten to the screening. Right. It's another way of saying, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I loved uh, that occurred to me watching, I, I went to a screening last night and the credits roll and everyone just sits there and gets to have basically a concert, <laughs> uh, like Panic at the Disco, Casey Musgrove's Weezer concert, uh, sitting in their seats, just like wrapped. What am I going to hear next? Um, how do you make those choices? Are you involved in those? 
those choices. We're involved, but it's really our partner and our, our invisible partner um, in all of this is this incredible guy named Tom McDougall. He's the first one that ever hears any of these songs. We write them and they have to go through him first before we even give them to the directors. And he's the one who says like, yeah, 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 I like it. Um, um, but Tom has unbelievable musical taste like he's just and he knows everybody too he knows all the rock stars and he was the one who um created this amazing thing it, it was the such a fun summer getting to produce with panic at the disco casey musgraves and weezer bobby played the keyboard oh, yeah. um for the weezer so now i just tell people this is my husband. He's in Weezer. <laughs> and we got to meet Weezer at the premiere a few nights ago, and, and they said it was okay that I say that. So I am in Weezer. You're in Weezer. <laughs> the Weezer. The Weezer version blew my mind because it just sounds like a Weezer song. You guys wrote it. You guys wrote a Weezer song. That's mm-hmm. like, it's incredible the way that that came through. We wrote our first Weezer song. Oh, sure. First of many. <laughs> I think we might do an album, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, and similarly, Panic at the Disco. I was like, how is this not written for Panic at the Disco? Oh, my gosh. We, oh. we couldn't believe it. We were lucky to be there that day when he was in the studio about to sing it. And he had told us, or someone had told us, um, <clears throat> that he was going to sing the song in Adina's key and sing those high, same high notes that Adina hits. And we were like, I don't think that's a great... Do we have a backup plan? And he came in and just blew us all away it was unbelievable and the song is such a party in that yeah. version i mean it it's and the guitars <clears throat> doing the oh my riff. god yeah. it's yeah. great and and that's an amazing producer named jake sinclair yeah. um who did both the weezer track and the panic at the disco and then casey musgraves is one of my secret favorite things so um i mean i love her i love her stuff i'm really into her, the golden hour album right now um but her the spell that she casts with her writing partner uh it's very like simon and garfunkel meets mystical and, and i'm very excited for the world to hear that one too yeah it was giving me very like allison krauss sort of yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah yeah i'm 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 from north carolina um so i have a love of the mountain music too sure. it's beautiful um, I wanted to ask you quickly about there's a credit for Aurora as the voice. And um, and so um, what was what was that choice? Uh, what was the choice around that? And then also knowing that a musical riff you were going to write was going to be such an integral plot point of this film. Into the Unknown is the I Want song of the show. Elsa is the is the central character this time. And um, and she's we had written a, a plain vanilla I Want song where she was just singing about I Seek the Truth. It was called Seek the Truth. Um, and it was a little on the nose and it was a little limp. It just sort of sat there. Um, and we had more collaboration with, with Jen and Chris. And um, as a result of that, realized that there would be, we would invent a voice that was reaching out to Elsa and only she would hear it. And it was calling her away from everything that she knew and loved into this dangerous journey. So we figured that that voice would be musical and that um, the new I Want song would be a duet with it. And so um, the voice wakes her up at 3 a.m. And what we decided that it would sing is this uh, is this motif called Dies Irae. It's from a Gregorian chant and it's all associated with death and danger. Um, you can hear it in tons of movie scores over the years. Yeah, you heard okay. it. Yeah, and it's been used. Yeah, it's the beginning. Opera. It's the beginning of The Shining. It's, right. it, it, it's right. been used by composers through for the centuries. Right, and so it is that. 
And then we really needed to, to use a real Norwegian who understood cooning, which is a shepherdess. Um, and it's a way that, that shepherdesses used to call their cattle. Each cattle, each herd had its own song that it would come to. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, so it's calling Elsa like a catalyst in the movie. Um, <laughs> but um, the Aurora is the quirkiest, most amazing human being. Um, if you, I, I, A quote from our, when we recorded her, one of the things she said is like, I think I have too, too many tutus on. I'm going to take two of them off. <laughs> um, another thing was when she said, um, may I take a break to do a cartwheel? <laughs> <laughs> she was, if you get a chance to interview yeah. her, you need to. The other thing to say about Into the Unknown is that it mirrors the whole movie. So, into the unknown is an octave. Do-do, into the unknown. Stepping your toe outside the boundary that you know. Um, into the unknown, you've just flown an 11th, um, which you're told not to do when you're running music. Um, but you've gone so far afield, and that's what's going to happen with Elsa. Love it. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Uh, well, that does it for this week's show. Uh, next week, we'll have uh, the National Board of Review, the ever-elusive ones, and the New York Film Critics Circle Awards to talk about, and then also the Golden Globes. We're going to have an episode coming out on Monday after the Golden Globe nominations are announced, uh, so the awards rush continues. Uh, we'll actually have two episodes next week, so you'll get that and a whole other one because what a busy season it is. Um, in the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, writing about all these things. You can find uh, Richard and Cam and Sonia's top tens of the decade and of the year, and lots of Irishman coverage, too. Uh, you can talk to us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen or on our own. I'm at Katie Rich. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard? Rylaws. And Joanna? Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the most subtle Oscar campaign goes to Mike Hogan. Make everyone learn George McKay's name. <laughs>